Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out the Word of God now and turn in it to the book of Acts and chapter number 23, Acts 23. If you don't have a Bible, there would be one under a chair in front of you. You could grab that Bible and turn in it to page 112, and you would be at Acts chapter 23. This week, I was thinking back to my senior year of high school, which was way back there for some of you. Uh, That was 1968 to 69 at Red Bank High School in Red Bank, New Jersey. And in my senior year, we put on a musical, and the musical was South Pacific. It was put together by Rodgers and Hammerstein. It first was a Broadway play in 1949, and then it was a movie in 1958. Some people called South Pacific the greatest musical there ever was. And I, and I still remember it. I really do, all these years later. I remember that Kathy Dorn played Bloody Mary. And I remember that Carol Barton played Nellie Forbush. And those are still actually Facebook friends of mine today. And it may surprise you to know that, yes, in that musical, South Pacific, I had a role. Yes, I did. I was in that. I played Marine Corporal Hamilton Steves. And that isn't a picture of us, but that's the way we were dressed because we were playing the role of the U.S. military that was stationed in the South Pacific in World War II. I really remember it. I mean, it was more than 40 years ago, and I remember it. In fact, I will be driving down the street or just walking down a hallway, and I remember the opening lyrics to one of the songs from South Pacific. It's a song, Younger Than Springtime. Younger than springtime are you... Softer than starlight, are you? Now, I didn't, I didn't actually sing that. Now, that was, that was a song for one of the leads, but you can tell that with me singing it. But I still remember that. What, I, I, it was a role that I took very seriously of being Corporal Steves. You know, as followers of Jesus, we're also called to a role in a drama called the kingdom of God. We are called to be witnesses. Remember Acts chapter 1 and verse 8? You shall be my witnesses. What does a witness do? Well, a witness tells their story. A witness tells what they know and what they have experienced. And as we continue our study entitled Seeds in the book of Acts, we're coming today to Acts chapter 23. In fact, we're going to be covering four chapters today. This will be a miracle in and of itself. And in these four chapters, beginning in chapter 23, Paul has an opportunity to give his testimony. He has an opportunity to tell his story. He has an opportunity to tell what he knows of Jesus and what he has experienced. And we're going to see this drama of the kingdom of God in four acts today. And as we look at it, There's a lot of lessons for us. In fact, there's more lessons than we could even cover in one message today. And so here's the way the four acts break out. In act one, we have Paul before the Sanhedrin in chapter 23. In acts two, we have Paul before the high priest and Felix 
in chapter 24. In Act 3, we have him before Festus in chapter 25. And in chapter 26, we have him in Act 4 before Agrippa and Festus. So those are the various acts. And as we go along in the acts, we want, us, we want ourselves to be able to meet the cast of characters that appears in that particular act. So let's begin by looking at Act 1, where we have Paul before the Sanhedrin in chapter 23. Now, all of this is set up by the last verse of chapter 22. Because you might remember that the Roman commander, there had been this absolute riot in Jerusalem, and he wanted to know why he was being, Paul was being accused by the Jews. And so he made an arrangement. Remember, they had taken him back to the fortress Antonia, and he made an arrangement for the Sanhedrin to assemble and to be brought before Paul right outside of the fortress. And this was an out-of-the-norm assembly of the Sanhedrin because it was over by the fortress. And so that leads us to the cast of characters that appear, which begins with the Sanhedrin itself. If, if you don't know, this was the National Senate of Israel. It was comprised of 70 members, Sadducees and Pharisees, along with the high priest. And as Paul gets ready to share his testimony about Jesus' death and resurrection. This is the fourth time in the book of Acts that the Sanhedrin had an opportunity to hear that. In chapter 4, they heard it from Peter and John. In chapter 5, they heard it from the 12 apostles. In chapter 6 and 7, they heard it from Stephen. And now the Sanhedrin is going to hear it from the apostle Paul. But it reminds me of a principle, and that is that God does not take rejection of the person and work of the Lord Jesus lightly. And whether it's a group of people or an individual, if we continue to reject, eventually there will be silence from God and then judgment. And so as we look at this cast of characters, we have the Sanhedrin, the whole council, but we also have the high priest whose name was Ananias. And I want to just simply introduce him to you before we look at the details. Ananias, I'll tell you, was a real scoundrel. Ananias was known for his greed and for his violence. In fact, the historian Josephus tells us of Ananias that he would regularly steal from the tithes that people gave to the priests and he would steal those and keep them for himself. He would openly bribe the Roman governmental authorities to get his way. And Ananias was despised by the nationalist zealot party in Israel because of the way that he carried on with the Roman government. Now, understanding some of those characters, let's, let's look at what happens in this first act. Look at verse 1 of chapter 23. Paul, looking at the council, the Sanhedrin said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside Paul to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you, try to, do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul replied, I was not aware that he was high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. You know, Paul's appearing before 
the Sanhedrin and the high priest, and he gets one sentence out of his mouth, and the high priest is basically saying, you're guilty, don't insult my intelligence. But you know, I believe this was done in a very calculated way by Ananias, because what he really wanted to do was to rile Paul up before the Roman authorities and show him to be very rebellious. Well, he does basically say to him in verse 3 of Ananias, you are a whitewashed wall. Now, most of us today might not understand why that was a little bit of of an insult. It was an idiom for you are a complete hypocrite. Say, well, where did it all come from? Well, in Israel, you would have these above-ground tombs. And if you were to touch one, you would become defiled. So they would whitewash them. They would paint them white. So you would learn to avoid them. They would be very, very clear that they were there. And so you had something that looked very clean on the outside because it was whitewashed, but on the inside it was very foul and dirty. And so that's the idea of being a whitewashed wall. You look kind of clean on the outside, but inside you are foul and dirty. You are a hypocrite. And then he basically says, Paul, to him, you're you're doing this in violation of the law. I mean, the law says I'm to be judged fairly. I I have not even been formally charged with anything yet, and yet you're ordering someone to slap me across the mouth. And so he says to Ananias, God is going to strike you, which, by the way, was a prophetic comment. Just a few years later, the zealots in Jerusalem were rebelling and they burned down Ananias' house and he managed to flee and get away for a little while, but they eventually found him hiding in an aqueduct and they took him out. Now, now you say, what's going on here? I mean, doesn't he know who the high priest is? It talks about that a little bit in verses four and five. Well, Well, Paul apparently had never met Ananias. It had been even eight years since he was in Jerusalem. And remember, this was not the official building where they would assemble. They were not in all their official robes. And yet, Paul still apologizes for his outburst because he always wanted to live his life aligned with Scripture. Now, if you just freeze frame it right there, Paul realized something. He realized the outcome of this has already been predetermined. It is inevitable, as he saw this beginning to unfold, where you can't even get more than a sentence out of your mouth, that he was going to be found in violation, in religious violation. And so, look at verse 6. It says, Perceiving that one group in the Sanhedrin were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul cried out, and he says, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And that was true because he was hoping in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But he also made this statement because he saw the possibility of creating a diversion. You see, the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin believed in the concept of the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees did not. And so he says, you know what? I think I could create a little diversion here. By the way, there's nothing wrong with being wise as a fox when it comes to sharing your story. And so two things happen out of this. Number one, there is a theological clash and an incredible uproar that follows. In fact, in verse 10, we find out that the Roman commander had to step in again because he was afraid that Paul was going to be torn to pieces. 
can kind of imagine what the scene must have looked like. By the way, this is the third rescue of Paul by this Roman commander. And then immediately afterwards in verse 11, when Paul may begin to doubt himself, Jesus actually comes to him and encourages him. Paul, you're doing the right thing. You're doing the right thing in sharing your story and being my witness. The second thing that happens in all of this, though, is that a conspiracy erupts. Look at verse 12. Now, when it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. And there were more than 40 involved in this plot. And they came to the chief priests and the elders, and they said, we bound ourselves under an oath to taste nothing, to eat nothing, until we have killed Paul. And they suggest that you and the council, the Sanhedrin, should notify the commander to bring Paul down from the fortress Antonia, bring him down into the area where the Sanhedrin would normally meet. And when he does that, we are ready to slay him before he even gets there at all. Probably these were some of the Sakari. We've talked about them before. Uh, the ones who would have knives hidden under their robes. And they just knew that if they, could get, if they could just get Paul down on the narrow streets of Jerusalem, they would be able to go ahead and stick him a good one and take him out. Now what happens next is fascinating to me. It reminds me of the books of Esther and the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. You know, in the book of Esther, there's really no mention of God, and yet God is providentially at work. And we see the same thing happening here. We see that God is sovereignly working in the events of the day and the circumstances and the people to accomplish his will. Because you had this incredible plot. It was ironclad. They were going to take him out. But notice what happens in verse 16. The son of Paul's sister, that would be his nephew, heard of their ambush. You know, Paul's young nephew just happens to hear about it. A little bit like Ruth in the book of Ruth happens to show up on the field of Boaz. His nephew hears about it. He comes in. He tells Paul about it. Paul says, go tell the Roman commander. The Roman commander says, I can't let this happen. And so then he gives orders for 470 soldiers to accompany Paul to Caesarea and to turn him over to Felix, the governor. And that's exactly what happens. They leave under cover of darkness at 9 p.m. They travel for the 60 miles from Jerusalem to Caesarea, and they hand Paul over with a letter to the governor. And men and women, I just think this event right here is a reminder that every one of us need. You know, when adverse circumstances come in our life, maybe we've been falsely accused, maybe we have a disease that has suddenly shown up, maybe there's a relationship that has been broken, maybe our sewer has been clogged and we've got to pay $60 an hour to have it unclogged. But all these kinds of things can happen, these adverse circumstances, but even when adverse circumstances are happening, God is providentially at work. He is always at work. He is never off duty. He is never unaware. Every event that happens in your life and my life is in his hand. And in the midst of those adverse circumstances, we need to rest in his providential care. Now, that brings us to Act 2. 
Act 2 in chapter 24, where we have Paul before the high priest and Felix. So again, we have to expand the cast of characters and take a look at this guy, Felix, who was the governor. Now, this guy was a corrupt official. Felix was crude. He was repressive. He was evil. He was an unscrupulous master of cruelty and lust. He'd been married multiple times. One of his earlier wives was the granddaughter of Anthony and Cleopatra. Heard about them? He was a guy who regularly practiced in the government assassination. In fact, he hired some of the Sakari to murder one of the high priests. This was Felix, the governor, the Roman governor, and he would ruthlessly stamp out any rebellion of the Jews. And Felix was hated by the Jews. He was hated for being violent and corrupt in his character. And so Paul is getting ready to appear before this governor. Now, again, I want to freeze frame for a moment and just think for a second about Paul's past two weeks. In the past two weeks, he'd been the target of vicious rumors. He'd been beaten by a mob. He'd been arrested by the Romans. He attempted to witness to the mob, and then they rioted a second time. He witnessed to the Sanhedrin, found himself being slapped hard against the mouth. He had escaped a murder plot, and now he was before a corrupt governor. You know, and some think serving the Lord is a boring thing. Uh, Not at all. And so as he gets ready with all that, you just have to kind of feel that in his life. He's getting ready now to appear before this governor. Look at chapter 24, verse 1. After five days, the high priest Ananias, who had been in Jerusalem, came down to Caesarea, and he brought with him some elders with an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. And after they summoned Paul there, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, he's speaking to Felix here, and he says, since we have through you attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms that are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But that I may not weary you any further, I just beg you to grant us your kindness, a, a brief hearing. In the high priest brings down this guy who's described as an attorney. Uh, The word in the original language is rhetoros. We get the word rhetoric from that. It's R-H-E-T-O-R-O-S. This guy, this guy that we have here, Tertullius, was a rhetorical wizard. He was a five-time winner of the Golden Throat Award of Israel. Uh, he, He was an ancient version of Johnny Cochran. Remember the dream team of OJ? If it does not fit, you must acquit. That's the kind of guy the high priest brought in. And he gets very flowery of his praise of Felix in verses 2 and 3. But the complete opposite was true of Felix. And he begins to deliver three accusations regarding Paul. First of all, they accuse Paul of political intrigue. We see that in verse 5. We found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. And then he's also accused of being a religious extremist, also in verse 5. He is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Who wants to be a ringleader of a sect? 
And then he's accused of being a temple desecrator in verse 6. He tried to desecrate the temple. We won't look at in detail because we don't have time, but Paul responds to all of these charges. In verses 11 and 12, he really talks about the charge of political intrigue. And really what he says to him, he says, listen, you know what? I was only in Jerusalem for a week. He'd been in Caesarea now for five days, but he says, 12 days ago, I came to Jerusalem. I mean, how do you get political intrigue going in a week? And I I came to worship. I didn't come to agitate. And basically, he goes on to point out, he says, you know, I didn't even give a speech. How can you agitate and get intrigue going when you don't even give a speech? I gave no speech in the temple, no speech in any synagogue. And then regarding the charge of being a religious extremist, he basically says in verses 14 and 15, hey, look, you have to understand, I embrace the Hebrew scriptures fully. From cover to cover, I believe it. And I believe in the hope of the resurrection, just like the Pharisees do, who are part of the Sanhedrin. And then regarding the charge of being a temple desecrator, he answers that in verses 12 and verse 18. Again, he says, I didn't give any speeches. It's hard to desecrate when you don't give any speeches. And and I was only there to complete a vow and also to bring money in relief of the poor people who were suffering. Now, as part of Paul's defense, I want you to zero in for a moment on verse 16 And if you mark your Bible, this is a good verse to mark. In the the course of saying all this, Paul says this, I do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. And men and women, this is a worthy example for you and for me, what Paul says here. And you know what is interesting is I think when you talk about the role of the conscience in the Christian life, it's not talked about very often. And so I want to just take a little excursus for a moment and and briefly just summarize some about the conscience. You know, the word conscience is used in the New Testament some 29 times. It's pretty significant. And what do we mean by conscience? Well, conscience is the innate sense of ought that we have. It is the inner intuitive sense of right and wrong. It's our conscience that was designed by God to give us the thumbs down or the thumbs up. You know, the thumbs down would be the conscience would say to us, don't do it, that's a wrong thing to do. Or our conscience could give us the thumbs up and say, yeah, do it, it's the right thing to do. And our conscience can even act afterwards where we do something and the conscience says, that was wrong, you shouldn't have said that, you shouldn't have done that. Or the conscience could say, what you said, what you did, it was right. It's an important part of the Christian life to engage our conscience. Now, it's important, though, that we remember that the conscience is not infallible. It's possible that we can have, as the New Testament talks about, you can look up some of the verses, a weak conscience. What does that mean? Well, a weak conscience is one that has insufficient knowledge about what is right or wrong. Sometimes we can have insufficient knowledge, and in terms of right and wrong, we're too lenient. You know, someone maybe who grew up in in a family where they were exposed to pornography from a very young age, and then they're looking at pornography, and someone goes, what are you doing? And said, what? What? I mean, I've done this all my life. I grew up looking at pornography. What's wrong with it? Well, see, there's insufficient knowledge of what's right and wrong. It's a too lenient view. We can also have a too restrictive view Uh, For example, someone might say, you know what, I believe every tattoo, no matter what it is, is inherently evil. 
Well, that's insufficient knowledge of what's right and wrong. It's just too restrictive. We've got to be careful about that. Now, here's what's important to understand. When we choose, even as a follower of Jesus, to violate our conscience, our conscience can become, and I'll just give you some of the New Testament terms, it can become defiled. It can become seared. That means calloused or scarred. And it can actually become evil. But it is a tool that God uses. And so there's much for us to learn from Paul here. This is why this is an important verse. Look at it again. Paul says, this is what I do. I do my best. In other words, I make it a target every single day to have a blameless conscience, or we could call it a good conscience or a clear conscience, to have a blameless conscience in two spheres, before God and before men. And so if we get nothing else out of this message, this verse alone should be a question for reflection for each one of us. Do we do like Paul, where we make it our target every single day to have a blameless conscience, both before God, you know, that has to do with a lot of the interior things that are going on, and before men, that has a lot to do with the exterior things that are going on. Great verse. A lot of application there. Well, let's get back to the drama. Look in chapter 24 at verse 24. Some other characters appear in the scene. You know, some days later, Felix, we've already heard about who he was, uh, arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewish. This was a gal, Drusilla, who had been married before, but she decided to divorce her husband so that she could marry Felix because she was drawn to the incredible power that he had. She became Felix's third wife. And I just think it's an interesting aside that the historian Josephus tells us of Drusilla that her beauty exceeded all other women in the land. She was the most beautiful woman there was in all of Israel. And so they send for Paul, and they want to hear him speak about faith in Christ in the end of verse 24. And so verse 25, he was discussing with these two individuals three things, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Now, you know, there's people out there in the expanded Christian community in the Christian world that are out there who would say this to us. If you want to reach other people, if you want to reach people, you have to be positive. You talk about positive things. You don't want to talk about things like sin. You don't want to talk about things like judgment. That's not the way that you reach people, so they would say. They would say the problem that people have is really not a sin problem. The problem is that they're just immature or they're disadvantaged or they just need to be informed or they just need to be educated. That's what many people in our world say today. But I, I noticed that Paul didn't operate that way. He, he talked to them, to Felix and to Drusilla, about righteousness. He no doubt said to them, listen, you must understand that God has standards. And we violate his standards. And no doubt he began to enumerate some of their past sins to them. And then he talked to them about self-control. He talked to them about some of today's temptations, not just their past sins, but today's temptations. And no doubt he says things like this to them. Listen, by ourselves as human beings, we're just doomed to fail. But Jesus Christ can change your life. 
God can provide the power for you to think differently and to live differently. And then he also talked to them about judgment, about a future accounting that was coming for everyone. No doubt he made the same statement that was made in in Acts 17.31 where it said that God had fixed a day in which he was going to judge the world. And I'm sure he said to them, listen, Jesus is going to be the judge. And as he was pointing them to Jesus, I think he said something like this. Listen, you can have the choice. He'll either be your rescuer or he will be your judge. You to choose. And we learn in the latter part of verse 25, Felix's response. It says that he was frightened. He was terrified. Now just stop there. How is he going to respond to this? Well, in the last part of verse 25, we find out. He says to Paul, go away. When I find the time, we can talk about this. In other words, this is too convicting. Some other time, we can maybe deal with this. We learn from verse 26 part of what his motivation of delay was because he was hoping that somehow he could get a payoff, a financial payoff from Paul. That tells us what his true, where his true affections lie. You know, someone said this, one of these days usually means none of these days. And it's very likely that Felix here procrastinated himself right into hell. I'm reminded of what it says in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Well, that leads us then to Act 3, where we have... Paul before Festus in chapter 25. Again, we have uh, the cast of characters shifting a little bit. There's a lot in verse 27 of of chapter 24. It says, two years passed and Felix was succeeded. Basically, Felix was thrown out of office because of this incredible conflict he had with the Jews and all the things that he did wrong. And this guy named Festus was put in his place as governor. And you know when you've had a really bad apple leader, sometimes you see this in in coaching, you have a really bad apple coach, and then they sort of go the polar opposite when they hire the next guy. That's exactly what happened here. Festus was the polar opposite of Felix. He was honorable, he was quiet, he was efficient. And he was brought in with the express purpose in mind to mend the relationship with the Jews. And in chapter 25, verses 2 and 3, the Jews come to... Festus about Paul, and Festus finds himself in this dilemma. You know, if I'm going to release Paul, which he really deserves to be released, the Jews are going to get upset with me, and that's the primary thing I was was brought in here to iron out. And yet, if I keep him, how can I keep him when he hasn't broken a Roman law? And so he's trying to figure out a way around all of these things. And in verse 9, he brings Paul aside, wishing to do the Jews a favor He said, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem from here in Caesarea and stand trial there? Well, we all know what's going to happen if he goes back up to Jerusalem. And Paul said, listen, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, the, the Roman tribunal right now, where I ought to be tried. I haven't done anything wrong. And basically what he says at the end of verse 11 is, I now appeal to Caesar. That really meant I'm appealing to the Supreme Court back in Rome. 
Okay, so that's now been done, but there's still a dilemma. If I'm going to send him to back to Rome, this is what Festus is thinking, what list of charges am I going to give? I have to come up with something. I have to figure something out. And that leads us to Acts chapter 4, where we see Paul before Agrippa and Festus. Now, now look at, at, at chapter 25, verse 13. When several days had elapsed, trying to figure out what list of charges am I going to send, King Agrippa and Bernus arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Now, this gives us another little cast of characters. I want you to have a feel for these two people. And these two people are, are some of the worst. Uh, this is Herod Agrippa II. He was the last of the Herods. Herod Agrippa II was the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Remember, Herod the Great was the one who killed the babies in Bethlehem. That was his great-grandfather. He was the son of Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I is the one who executed James in Jerusalem. And he is considered by the Romans to be an authority on the Jews. So he shows up along with Bernus. Now, this really gets rather sordid. But Bernus is Agrippa's sister. And Bernus had been married at the age of 13. She'd been divorced, remarried, and then widowed. And by all accounts now is having an incestuous relationship with her brother, Agrippa. She later became a mistress to the Roman general, Titus. So these two birds show up on the scene. And in verse 23, on the next day, they come together, it says, amid great pomp, and they enter the auditorium accompanied by all the prominent people of the city. There was this great pretension and pageantry, you know, and you had those large giant feather fans going, and they were wearing the hottest and the latest high fashions. They show up to hear Paul tell his story. Look over at chapter 26. In chapter 26, we won't read through the verses, but verses 9, 11, Paul begins to be the witness that God called him to be. He begins to tell his story, and he says this. He says, listen, you have to understand my past. I was a violent persecutor of the church. I was on a reign of terror. I headed a death squad. I was a religious terrorist who was under legal cover. That's what Paul really says. Now, what do you think was happening with Agrippa as he hears all that? He's leaning in. You know, this is my kind of guy. This is my kind of dude here. And then Paul goes on to say, well, that was my past. But he said then in verses 12 and 13, I was walking down this road and I saw this great light. And then in verses 14 to 18, he says, I heard this great voice. Look at verse 14. I was down on the ground and I heard this voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? I remember reading this years ago, and I thought, what is a goad? I don't even, kicking against the goad, what does that mean? Well, a goad was a spiked rod, and you would use this to teach an ox submission. You would poke them when you wanted them to learn what you wanted them to do. And a lot of times, an ox would begin to kick back when they were poked with a goad. And that would just lead to more goading. And really what the Lord Jesus was saying to Paul is, Paul, I've been speaking to you. I've been poking you, but you've been resisting. No doubt, God was speaking to him when he watched how Stephen died. 
No doubt God was speaking to Paul when he tried to force people to blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ and they refused to blaspheme. You know what's true? Something that's very interesting to think about. Do you know that God is always speaking and directing? Even in the life of someone who doesn't know him, he is always speaking and directing. The question is, are we listening and are we heeding? Well, in verse 18, we learn the basic charge that Jesus gave to Paul. He says, here was my charge, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have faith in me. That's Jesus speaking. Well, we see the reaction of Festus to all this in verse 24 of the chapter. While Paul was saying all of this, Festus said in a very loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. You're completely out of your mind. You're ODing on this religious stuff. In verse 25, Paul says, no, 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 no. I'm telling you the truth. And then it's interesting how he turns to Agrippa, Paul does, in verse 26. And he basically says, Agrippa, you've heard this before. You've heard about Jesus, the Nazarene. You've heard about his death on the cross. You've heard about the resurrection. You know, I'm thinking to myself at this point, who's really on trial here? I mean, who's really on trial, right? And then Paul employs a great witnessing technique. Don't miss it. It's in verse 27. Notice he says to King Agrippa here, do you believe the prophets? Now, that put him in a bad position because it was going to really reveal his perspective on things. If he were to say, yes, I believe the prophets, then Festus and the Romans would go, hey, you're mad too, just like this Paul guy. If he were to say no, when the Jews were going to freak out completely that Agrippa doesn't believe in the prophets. He utilized this great tool in witnessing called a question. And I want us just to remember, there's great value in using questions. A lot of times we don't even know how to get uh, conversations started. Use questions when we're witnessing. I'll give you some examples of the ones that I've used and, and others have used. Here's one of the ones. What happens after we die? It's a great question to start a conversation. Just listen to what someone says. It'll tell you a lot where they're coming from. Or what do you think the purpose of life is? Or something like this, is truth relative or is truth absolute? Now, it leads to all kinds of unveiling of where someone is. It starts a conversation. Or even the question, where are you on your spiritual journey? So, so it's important to use these questions, and that's what Paul does here. And rather than answer the question, which is what some people do, Agrippa slides around it. He just totally avoids the question. You know, he was asked a particular question, do you believe the prophets? Verse 28, you know, in a short time, you may persuade me to become a Christian. Just skipped around the whole question. Now, through all of these acts and through this whole drama, one thing all of the Roman authorities agree on, it's in verse 31. This man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. Now, we've kind of rocketed through four different acts of the drama of the kingdom of God. I want to just take a moment just that we'll pull back for a second, pull back, and let's look at some life application. Two things. One thing we learn from all of this is that there's hope 
or anyone. And I don't know what any of your background may be, but there's hope for anyone. We learn that from Paul, who used to be Saul, who used to be, you know, this religious terrorist, and he was changed. There's hope for Felix and Drusilla. There's hope for Agrippa and Bernice. They were presented with that hope that's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's hope for anyone. It doesn't matter what your background may be. But, you know, I I think of Agrippa's response. I've almost been persuaded. You know, that's like someone who's on death row who was almost pardoned but got executed. Or it's, it's like someone who's fallen into a swollen river and they were almost rescued, but they drowned. We don't want to be in that position where we're just almost persuaded. Remember, Paul's goal and our goal is that we may turn people from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins by faith in Jesus. That's the message that's presented. Felix's excuse, ah, it's not a convenient time. Later. Festus's excuse, ah, it's just too illogical. It can't possibly be true that God becomes a man. To, and it's a simple, it can't, po- no. And Agrippa's excuse, you know what? I think I'll just like to avoid the issue. I'd like you to avoid the signs of cancer in your life. You know, foolish, foolish thing to do. All of these excuses have a bad into them. Could it be you're listening to my voice today and you have been kicking against God's goads? It's time to listen to what he has to say. In Isaiah 55, 6, it says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Second life application is that we're all witnesses. Every one of us who's a follower of Jesus. And we are to witness about what we have seen and what we have experienced in our life. And that ought to be a lifestyle with all of us. And again, I would encourage us all to use questions like we've talked about today to open up conversations. And then as the conversation opens up, we can follow Paul's outline for how to give a testimony. We see it right in chapter 26. He started with before Christ. This is what my life was like. And then he talked about salvation. This is how salvation occurred in my life. And then he even talks about after salvation, what God had called him to. We can follow that very outline as we share our testimony and we're a witness for Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We're just so grateful that we have a savior, a rescuer from sin and judgment. And we thank you, Lord, that we've been called to have a role in the drama of the kingdom of God. We would pray that every one of us, myself, at the forefront of the line, would be faithful witnesses, that we would tell that which we know about Jesus, and that we would tell and relate what we've experienced in coming to know him. And we would honor Jesus by doing that in our life. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. 